we uh, considered the name of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, last uh, Sunday morning. Uh, his name, Jesus, and uh, a fuller understanding and comprehension of the meaning of his name. And of course, we'll be considering what that means tonight, but in a broader sense as we look into the Word of God. And so, drawing from that, I want us to look into the first three verses of the Song of Solomon. And uh, <clears throat> there are those who do not discern the Song of Solomon as a gloriously spiritual book that's not simply speaking of Solomon and uh, the Shulamite and their love story. It's speaking of the church, the redeemed and the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, Solomon uh, uses and uh, the Shulamite as the one that he expresses his love toward in such a wondrous way and hers toward him. By the way, Shulamite is, uh, Shulamite is the feminine of Solomon, just as we are in Christ. We are indeed feminine in the sense of being his bride, the bride of Christ. And so we have a blessed, precious book that's been called, I think rightly, the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament Scriptures. And in the, the first three verses of the Song of Solomon, we read, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. And if I recall, it's been a good while since I expounded through the Song of Solomon, I think we drew majorly upon the kisses of the Lord as being His word from His mouth given to us. As He kisses us with His truth, He gives us His glorious gospel. He gives us His promises. He makes known to us the wondrousness of His love from which we can never be separated. And it becomes more precious to us than wine indeed or anything else in this world. Then we read in verse 3, Because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore, do the virgins love thee. No one can truly appreciate or understand the nature of this song unless they have in some measure experienced its meaning unless we have experienced the love of Christ, the wondrousness of His grace and, and mercy toward us and, and something of the depth of His love as He makes it known to us in redemption and the gloriousness of what He has done for us, we could not begin to appreciate the Song of Solomon. And so one old uh, divine wrote, the true experimental knowledge of this divine love is the best commentary. And of course, we only learn the truth as we experience it. Truth experienced is truth learned. And so, <clears throat> we know that uh, there are always those who are ready when we look at a book like this and level the charge of spiritualizing or allegorizing of Scripture and uh, that would be by those who see nothing going past a, a bare literal letter of the Scripture. 
and by allegory, of course, uh, in regard to Scripture, we're speaking of the teaching of a spiritual truth, but under the figure of something else. In the case of Song of Solomon, the love between Solomon and the Shulamite. Not all Scripture bears an allegorical meaning. We have narrative in Scripture. We have clear doctrine in Scripture, which would not at all be under the category of allegory. And uh, there is a considerable difference between allegorizing Scripture and interpreting allegorical Scripture. There are distinctly allegorical Scriptures that we have in the Word of God. And so... You get in trouble when you try to literalize all of Scripture. For instance, you remember the Lord Jesus said, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Well, of course, we understand that spiritually. We understand that in the wondrousness of faith that brings us to, to partake of our blessed Lord Himself. And so, <clears throat> were we able, which we're not, to sense the Lord himself in all of Scripture, how blessed indeed that would be. He says, they are they which testify of me. He's there. He's in all of Scripture. He's in Genesis 1-1 through Revelation 22-21. And indeed, if he, like he did with the Emmaus disciples, open our hearts and uh, begin at Moses and expound in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself, our hearts would burn indeed. Well... I trust when we get in the Word of God and when He begins to teach us and we begin to, to understand His truth and something of His gloriousness and His character and His beauty and the greatness of His redeeming love toward us that uh, indeed our hearts burn yet. This much is certain. If in truth we savor of Him at all, there's nothing in this world that will satisfy us apart from Him. We would want nothing whatsoever apart from Him. And uh, it would be like uh, John Newton. John Newton wrote many more hymns than Amazing Grace. One of them I wish we had in our hymnal. But he wrote, How tedious and tasteless the hours when Jesus no longer I see. Sweet prospects Sweet birds and sweet flowers have all lost their sweetness to me. Apart from Him, all is vain, empty. And when we come to know the Son of the living God, and we come to behold some of the wonders of His character, there's nothing that can compare to that, to the child of God. And there's nothing that can thrill the soul of one who is in Christ when he is not known, present. And there are times, there are those times when we seem to have a spiritual dearth and we can't find him as we would want. He's not left us. But those times should draw our hearts more and more to cry to him and to realize that we have nothing apart from him. So we need like some we read of in the Gospel of John, to cry out, Master, where dwellest thou? And pray that his answer would be to us, Come and see. And so, 
as we think of the pouring forth of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we uh, read here in the third verse of the Song of Solomon, the name here is like unto rich, costly, fragrant, perfumed oil. This oil is outpoured. It gives a delightful appeal to all who sense it. It is expensive. It is that which cannot help but grab the attention. Oil, also in the scripture. Oil was the early symbol by which things were totally consecrated to God. That would be called anointed, set apart. There was a special oil that was used. This oil to set persons like the high priest or things apart to God, consecrated completely to him. When the high priest was set apart, which early showed that none could approach God except by what God himself had appointed and the sacrifice he had appointed, the high priest was set apart, as we learn in Exodus chapter 30 and verses 20 through 22, with, quote, and holy anointing oil. And this divinely composed oil could not be limited or rather imitated and it could not be copied. There was to be absolutely no oil made with the same ingredients with which this oil was made in the Old Testament and could be used for no other use whatsoever other than what God appointed himself as you learn in Exodus chapter 30, verses 31 through 33. And this teaches us that the best that man could devise was not good enough. The best man could come up with was not good enough to represent the character of he who is the chiefest among 10,000. He who is the fairest among the children of men. There's nothing in nature. There's nothing in nature. There's nothing in man that can compare to the divine excellencies, the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. And of course, we read in Scripture concerning our Lord Jesus Christ that He is the Christ. Whosoever we read believeth that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. And so... uh, That means the anointed one. The anointed one. And of course, in himself, he is altogether lovely. There's no blemish. There's no spot. There's nothing ugly. There's nothing bad. He is altogether lovely. Thoroughly lovely. But unless his name, unless his name is poured out unto us, we would never see any beauty that we should desire him. Unless his name is poured out unto us, we would see no more beauty in him than anyone else did by nature, as Isaiah had prophesied. For by nature, naturally viewing, there was no beauty in him that men would desire him. The beauty was in his glorious character. The beauty is in who he was and why he came and expanded in learning of him who says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. 
And this was the reason for his anointed, his anointing, that he might be made known and that we might know him. If you look back into Psalm 45, which most believe to be the springboard actually for the Song of Solomon. In Psalm 45, this psalm, of course, applies to the Lord Jesus Christ in the highest sense. It begins, My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the, uh, the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips, therefore God hath blessed thee forever. And of course we know this is concerning our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As in Hebrews chapter 1, this psalm is drawn, drawn from. And the verse 6 here that expressly declares the deity of our Lord. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad so that we rejoice that our Lord Jesus is the anointed. He is the Christ. And what is meant by his name? His name outpoured. Of course, we touched upon this last Sunday morning, that name in Scripture is not something arbitrarily given. It has a specific purpose. It regards some characteristic of the person to be named or some purpose that God had for the purpose to be named, for instance. Uh, Moses was drawn out of the river. So you know what the name Moses means? Drawn out. The sons of Jacob had been prophetically named to correspond with their destinies as Judah. Praise the one whom his brethren would praise, the one through whom the Messiah, the anointed, would come. Of course, in Scripture, God himself changed some names to reveal what was purposed through them. Abram means high father. God changes his name to Abraham, father of many nations. Jacob, supplanter, what a rascal he was. How that fit his character by nature. And yet, by grace, God changes his name to Israel, prince with God. When Moses made his request to see God's glory, what a request. God revealed somewhat of his character to him. For instance, if you want to turn back to Exodus 34, you'll see how God made his name known to Moses. In Exodus chapter 34, and in verses 5 through 7, 
And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord, that is Jehovah, passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and it will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. So God is making his name known to Moses there by displaying his character to him. And the name of our Lord Jesus Christ is expressive of his character, of who he is, and of his nature, and of his purpose. You remember Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9? Verse 6, his name, not plural, singular, his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And we learn so much about our Lord there and his character in that regard. Um, in Revelation chapter 19, we know that We'll never discern fully the glories of our Lord's character. He has a name written that no man knoweth but he himself. Then John goes on to write in Revelation 19, and his name is the Word of God. Which means, here is the one God makes himself known through. Here is the one God is revealed in. His Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we looked into Matthew 1, last Sunday morning, his name shall be called Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. And we learn that comes from Joshua. Jehovah is salvation. And comes to signify he shall save. It's in his hands. And so his name is glorious. We learn of other names of our Lord as in Jeremiah 23 verse 6. He is Jehovah our righteousness. That's his name. In Jeremiah 20 uh, Jeremiah 23 and verse 6. The outpoured name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see nothing less than the revealing of his person, his character, his offices, his salvation. That has a big meaning. Name in scripture. And then we might ask, how is the name of the anointed, our Lord Jesus Christ, poured forth? How is it poured forth? Unless it is poured forth, it is not known. Unless it is poured forth, it cannot be savored. We know that from all of eternity... Before anything was created, that he was, is, the revealer of God. The revelation of God from all of eternity. He never became the word of God. He always was signifying the revelation of God. 
just as we're made known in our words, Christ is the word of the Father. And so John's gospel opens, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Then something of his name began to be poured, out, poured forth long before he ever came into the world. Long before Bethlehem. Long before the angel declared, There is born unto you this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Long before that glorious divine incarnation. The scripture tells us, Abraham saw his day and was glad. David prophetically savored of him and said, Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Isaiah saw him in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. John the Apostle in chapter 12 of his gospel in verse 41 tells us Isaiah spoke these things when he saw Christ's glory. He saw his glory long before his divine incarnation. Indeed. But all of the manifestations of his name were all in regard to the manifestation of himself in our human nature. Becoming incarnate and taking all the properties of our human nature from his mother's womb and from his mother. That's why the apostles could declare as John in John 1.14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the reason for it, God's so great salvation that would come in him. He possessed in himself, in himself, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, the despised poor prophet from Nazareth, as many considered him. Yet he possessed in himself the glories and the excellencies of the divine nature as in Colossians 2.19, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. But you know how we would come to know that? How we would come to savor of his name? How would we come to savor it? How would we come to know him? How is his name poured forth as precious ointment unto us, our anointed? How so? It would never have been so without the breaking of the container of his human nature. Can you discern what I'm declaring there? This precious heavenly oil would have remained only unto himself without the breaking of the human nature of our Lord. And as another put it, as the woman broke the alabaster box, and poured the pure spikenard, very precious, on the head of Jesus. And the house was filled with the odor of the perfume. So his broken body 
are these excellencies of the divine nature, mercy, grace, love, truth, forgiveness, and sanctification unsealed to ruined men. How precious. When do we or when did we come to know him? When we realize the wondrousness that his body was broken for us, that he died for us. Indeed, then how do we come to uh, savor of this glorious love divine, love's all excelling, love that will never ever be from us, apart from us, that nothing can ever separate us from? How do we come to know that love? Because he has outflowed that sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love by the giving forth of his spirit. By the giving forth of his spirit through the cross to us. As in Romans 5, verses 5 through 8, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely for a good man some would even dare to die, and so forth. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The broken body of our Lord, the cross, then comes forth the wondrousness of the oil that we savor, that this death was for us, that this death was the wondrous, glorious manifestation of the glorious love of God, redeeming love for us. And so, you see, we have the gospel here. And it is by this that the Lord draws His bride, His true church, she is called in Scripture then, in Revelation 21.9, the Lamb's wife. The Lamb's wife. He purchased us with His blood. Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. That is particular redemption. He loved the church and gave Himself for it. But further, further even, God has chosen weak, earthly vessels for this oil to be poured out into and then out of. I mentioned how weak I was Saturday, and yet the Lord upheld and strengthened. I had no strength that I could bear and bring and depend upon. And should I do so, his name's not going to be glorified. If I do so, oh, I might teach doctrine, I might do some things, but Christ's not going to be savored as long as I am strong in myself. And so as grueling as it was, and it was, and hard, way early in the morning, and crying out, Lord, I've got a duty today. Uh, I've got a duty to thee. I've got a duty to my dear brother who's now in thy presence. I've got a duty to his family and to our church. And I knew his strength is made perfect in weakness. And I went with that promise. I went with that promise. 
And generally when we're strong in ourselves, we're not going to exalt him as we should. You remember the Apostle Paul says in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We're persecuted, not forsaken, cast down, not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. I could not calculate the times that I've come and said, Lord, I'm insufficient for this. Who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to make thy truth known? Who is sufficient to preach thee, the glorious Lord of all? I don't have that in myself. And I'm awfully wearied and tired and, and have had things come against me that have weakened me only to come to realize that's the way the Lord uses me. That's the way He uses things. That's the way He uses us that He might be glorified in us even in our weakness and our difficulties. And you go through hard things, trust the Lord that He's making use of that. What I... Hear my daughter talking about hearing about Arthur Pink and him uh, memorizing a verse of Scripture every morning and meditating and thinking upon it and applying it during the day. Now she's doing the same. Well, she's afflicted. But I'm in hopes and it appears the Lord is using this in ways she may not even understand. It may be her family. i got a grandson. He's afflicted. If he could comprehend these things, it will ease that affliction. And the purpose be to glorify the Lord himself. You see, only that which savors of Christ alone in us or through us has even a sweet savor to God himself. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 through 17? We preach, he says, indeed, uh, he's talking about the lost or the saved. Uh, a savor of death unto one, a savor of life unto the other, but a sweet savor to God. A sweet savor to God. So, when I come, when I feel discouraged, when I stay, Lord, I would that we'd have more people that would come and would show a, a vital interest in the truth of God in a heart that's so given up to Thee that even difficulties would not s stop. And, uh, you know, and we do. Here you are, some of you. And uh, I realize we have difficulties among our people and hard things that prevent some from being able to come when uh, the times come. But if I can realize God himself gets a sweet savor when I preach his son, when I preach Christ. God himself smells the sweet savor of the Lord Jesus, his own son. And only those whom God receives in Christ are accepted by him. Because all else is putrefaction of sin. All else is stench in the nostrils of God apart from Him. And so, the name of our Lord poured out. The name of our Lord poured out. This is the Word of God. This is God's Word. These things are glorious. These truths wondrous when savored in the knowledge of our blessed Savior. But who are they? 
Who are they who delight in and find their greatest pleasure in savoring the outpoured name of the Lord Jesus Christ and savoring His sweet and blessed presence? Who know Him? You know, we could know all the fine doctrines of Scripture. We can be as high Calvinist as we want to be. But if we have only those doctrines and we have not Christ, what do we have? We have nothing. We have nothing. He's our salvation. And yes, I consider myself as high a Calvinist as did Spurgeon. And I believe in the doctrines of grace as taught in Scripture. But I never want those doctrines apart from our Lord Himself and the gloriousness of His redeeming love and His redeeming grace that we have in Scripture. So who are they who savor of Him? Who are they unto whom His name has been poured out because the vessel has been broken that contained the precious ointment? In verse 3 of Song of Solomon, Therefore do the virgins love thee. Therefore do the virgins love thee. This is, of course, spiritually speaking. Those are those who have a character in measure like his. The natural man has no delight in Christ. He finds no real appeal in him and finds no desirable beauty in him. Why? As in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. He's spiritually dead in sins and trespasses. He has no ability. But then the natural man loves that which is of himself, which is completely opposite to the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his or her spiritual death, because in sin man is dead spiritually in trespasses and sins. He can't move any move toward God. It's impossible. He's spiritually dead. God has to do all the saving. Correct? Indeed. And in this spiritual death, the sinner doesn't smell the stench of sin in himself. He doesn't discern the ugliness and awfulness of sin in his own being. He's spiritually dead. They love it. (laughs) They love the sinful world. They love their selfishness. They love it and they find their pleasure in it. They don't smell the stench of sin. It's only when God begins to do a work of His grace that one begins to comprehend the awful nature of sin in the sight of God. These virgins had the sinfulness of their natures washed away, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. They were given a new nature. They were given a new heart. They were given new affections, new desires. They tasted and found that the Lord is gracious. That the Lord is good. That the Lord is merciful. That the greatness of His love made known to them spans eternity. That nothing is like it in this fallen world. 
Night light. What another wrote. This is rather a good statement. These virgins are such as be truly holy and pure in heart and life, who though they are not perfectly free from all sin, yet have their affection to no sin. Tremendous statement. And the desire of the heart that loves Christ, that desires to be more like Him, because we're drawn to imitate those who love and admire, that one will strive to be like Christ. <laughs> we learn from children that those we admired, those we looked to, we wanted to be like them. That's why I had my little guns and cowboy things and so forth. And that's why there are those who get their, their sights on some entertainer or something in this world and they want to look like them, dress like them, act like them. Solemn, indeed. But those who behold the Lord of glory, they want to be like Him. They want to be like Christ. And these are those whose love was begotten by love. Had He not first loved us, we would never have come to know and love Him. If he had not first loved us, we would never have any love whatsoever toward him. And so John writes in 1 John 4.10, And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because God sent his only begotten son to be the propitiation. I'm not quoting that exactly right, but that's the meaning of the verse. To be the propitiation for our sins to be the one sacrifice God accepts and his wrath is then completely satisfied, his justice completely satisfied so that he makes known that he loves us. He sends his son. The Lord Jesus Christ loves us. Loved me, said Paul, and gave himself for me. Long before Paul ever knew him, Paul considered himself the chief of sinners. He meant that he's not simply the worst, that he led others, everybody else into sin as well. He was their chief. And so, what, what a, a wondrous love, a love this is. If we embrace this love, even when there are times when we feel, oh, my heart feels so cold sometimes. Even when we say, Lord, where are you? How tedious and tasteless the hours when Jesus no longer I see. Even when we feel so distant, we have to cry, Lord, be near, come to me. I want to know thee. And I seem to not discern thee as I would want. His love hasn't changed. He's still moving in us. We can trust him because our faith is not based upon our feelings. Our faith is based upon what he has promised. And upon his word, there is our stability. And why do we love him? First John 4, 19 declares we love him because he first loved us. And those who do so, they don't just love him because of what he has done or hope that he might do for them. That's a solemn thing. It's a solemn thing when those who have trouble in this world and uh, they want to seek the Lord, they think, but just to help them out of their troubles. 
not for him. Then when the trouble passes or some trouble goes along, oh, the world immediately takes their heart. Other activities then begin to take precedence over everything. And so, it's not simply for what he has done or could do for us, but himself. He who is altogether lovely. He who is love supreme, love incarnate. He, knowing him, desiring him, not just what he can do for us. Nothing then would mean anything to us unless he is there with us. And this love casts out fear and causes us to come to him even when we don't feel like we're worthy because I'll give you a hint, we're not. But he is. And he calls us to come to him not because of something in us but because he opened the way by the work and the blood of his cross. And so, how wondrous when our hearts can cry in prayer, understanding what we've looked into, into this one huge verse of Scripture this night, more love to Thee, O Christ. More love to Thee. And so, may God be pleased and bless the ministry of His Holy Word.